The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Well, today's, today's topic is portfolio theory, and it's uh, really one of the most important topics in finance. Um, we're going to go through the uh, historical theory of portfolio uh, optimization, uh, beginning with Markowitz mean variance optimization, uh, where we look at portfolios in terms of their performance characteristics as determined by their mean return and the volatility of returns. Uh, this analysis uh, gets extended by looking at also investing with a risk-free asset. Uh, the initial theory on portfolio analysis didn't consider investing in cash, but just investing in risky assets. Uh, the problem changes quite dramatically when we add the risk-free asset. Uh, then the topic of utility theory, uh, von Neumann Morgenstern utility theory. Uh, in uh, statistical decision theory, uh, we are trying to make decisions under uncertainty in a rational way. And von Neumann and uh, Morgenstern uh, developed a ut expected utility hypothesis for rational decision making, and that's really a very important motivator for uh, decision analysis generally and portfolio selection in particular. So we'll go through that. Uh, then we'll turn to portfolio optimization constraints. There are realistic issues when you have, well, there's how much money you have to invest or how much capital you have to invest, whether you can short securities or not. Uh, whether there are uh, sort of limits in capacity of different assets you might want to trade, those can come into play and affect the solutions. Um, all of these methods are driven by estimates of how well at we expect assets to do. So estimating returns or estimating alphas, uh, and also estimating the volatilities and correlations amongst the assets we're trading in. Uh, most of the theory we'll talk about today deals with uh, estimates, well, with, with the problem where we're assuming basically uh, certainty in terms of understanding those uh, underlying uh, return characteristics, the means, variances, and correlations, but when we have to estimate those, that, that raises new problems. And finally, we'll finish up talking about some alternative risk measures which extend the straightforward mean or simple mean variance analysis. <coughs> Now, the mean variance analysis is a single period analysis. Uh, what we want to do is consider investing our capital in some assets, and we want to do so for just a single period and do so optimally. Um, so in terms of notation, we'll consider risky assets indexed by I, 1 through M, single period returns will be a multivariate vector of those returns. The mean and covariance of, this, uh, of these assets are represented in a vector of returns and a covariance matrix of squared volatilities, the variances of the assets along the diagonals and the covariances on the off-diagonals. Uh, a portfolio will be represented as basically a weighting 
in of our investment in these M assets. So we'll have a vector W consisting of W1 up to W1, giving the relative weights and absolute weights of those uh, investments. Uh, we'll assume that we have one unit of capital to invest, so the sum of these weights equals one. And the portfolio <coughs> return has uh, expected return given by the expectation of this linear combination of the returns, which is simply the same linear combination of the underlying expectations. And the, co the variance of the portfolio is given by the variance of the weighted average of the individual returns, which is given by this quadratic form in the covariance matrix. So, uh, you know, we've gone through this. Uh, or you understand, I think, these calculations from our discussion in time series, and that, that's quite, quite simple. Now, let's, <clears throat> before going into the theory for this, let's look at the problem. Let's look at the portfolio analysis problem in a very simplified setting. Uh, we're just going to consider two assets and talk about optimal portfolios investing in these two assets. So M equals 2. The first asset uh, has return R1 with mean 0.15. Now I'm going to think of this as annualized return, so a 15% annualized return and a volatility of 25%. The second asset has expected return of 20% and a volatility of 30%, sigma 2. These assets are possibly correlated. We'll let rho denote the correlation between the two. And a portfolio, uh, basically all the portfolios we can invest in, uh, so long as we are you know, limited to a unit of capital and no shorting, um, are given by portfolios indexed by W, basically the amount of money we invest in the second asset. So RW is WR2 plus 1 minus WR1. That's the return on the portfolio that invests in that purport, those proportions in the two assets. The expected return is this linear combination, which is given in matrix form on the previous page, or in the pre, on the lecture notes. And the variance, or squared volatility, is what? It's 1 minus omega squared times the variance of R1 plus W squared times the variance of R2, then we have a cross, uh, a, co a covariance term that comes into play. Now, the mean variance analysis that uh, Markowitz addressed basically looks at the feasible portfolio set. Okay, we, we simplify things by saying let's ju uh, focus just on the volatility or variance and the expected return of our portfolio. So we can define the uh, feasible portfolio set as the collection of volatility return pairs for all the assets, or for all the portfolios. And uh, so, you know, well, what is pi star, that collection? Basically, what's the universe of possible <coughs> portfolios we could construct? In this two-dimensional case, it's going to be very simple. In multi-dimensional cases, it's more complicated. But what portfolios are optimal, suboptimal? How do we choose or identify a particular portfolio to invest in? How is that choice made? And is there any special structure to these portfolios? Um, what you'll see in the lecture today is that the 
Uh, Markowitz theory and extensions of that provide really elegant answers to these uh, questions. And, but let's understand basically what's going on just with this two-asset case. And what I'm going to do here is uh, just simulate 500 weekly returns with different values of the correlation between the two assets. And we want to examine the cumulative returns of each asset. The asset returns in terms of their means, volatilities, and correlations, a plot of pi star, and the uh, cumulative returns of each asset uh, with the minimum variance portfolio. So um, let me just highlight here that what we want here is to be plotting sigma omega versus alpha omega. Um, and we have two assets. We have basically um, <coughs> sigma 1 and alpha 1 corresponds to our first asset. Sigma 2 and alpha 2 corresponds to our second asset. So this point here corresponds to W equals W equals uh, zero, and uh, the other corresponds to W equals one. So uh, R one and R two. Now, what's going to happen when we combine the assets in a portfolio? Well, um, let's take a look at the simulation. And okay, here is a graph of the simulated asset returns with basically a, uh, the mean returns given by 15%, 25%, volatility is 20 to 30, and with an asset correlation of zero. So here's just a scatter plot of the weekly returns. There's basically no apparent correlation there. There actually is a sample correlation because the, a sample from this, uh, these distributions does, you know, won't have perfectly zero correlation. On top, we have graphs of the cumulative returns of the two ass individual assets. Uh, rather, obviously, the higher graph corresponds to the asset with higher return, um, and the lower, which is asset two, and the green corresponds to asset one. The graph on the right, top right, is the graph of the feasible set as we allocate between asset one and asset two. And so, by the simulation, this, you know, this curve corresponds to the feasible set of portfolios. And what's uh, really remarkable um, is that we can get uh, basically a reduction in the volatility of the portfolio without compromising and, in fact, improving the return of the portfolio. So if we invest 
fully in asset one, we're at this point, as we increase, as we start allocating towards asset two, not only does the return of asset of the portfolio go up, but the volatility goes down. And uh, let's see, on the, <coughs> in this simulation, what I've done is also plotted the uh, return of the portfolio corresponding to the minimum variance. Um, so let's uh, just look at the minimum variance portfolio. for a minute, we have sigma squared w is equal to 1 minus w squared plus w squared sigma 2 squared, this is sigma 1 squared, and then plus 0 in the case that there's no correlation between the two assets. If we want to minimize this uh, portfolio uh, volatility, we can take the derivative of that with respect to the weight and uh, set that equal to zero. So what's that equal to? Well, it's, uh, let's see, did I do this right? Actually, just with the uh, previous notes. Sorry, R1 is equal to zero. Okay, right. Okay, so we have two one minus W sigma one squared times minus one plus two W sigma two squared is equal to zero. And so the uh, solving this, we get W is equal to Let's see, you get 1 over sigma 1 squared, sorry, 1 over sigma 2 squared divided by 1 over sigma 1 squared plus 1 over sigma 2 squared. If you solve this out, you basically get a weighting on the different assets, which weights them inversely proportional to their squared volatility. And with this graph here, you can see that it is the blue graph is a bit closer to asset one than to asset two's cumulative return. That corresponds to giving a slightly higher weight to asset one because one over sigma one squared is bigger than one over sigma two squared. Well, let's look at what happens if we consider negative correlations between the two assets. Well, actually, okay, before we do that, um, you know, if you were going to choose one of these portfolios for uh, investing, you know, are there any portfolios that you wouldn't invest in? And are any of these portfolios suboptimal in terms of mean variance? Well, W1 is certainly infeasible. Or in terms of because we can oh we can increase its mean and we can increase its uh, and decrease its volatility. So actually, all of these points here are really suboptimal portfolios. And from the minimum variance portfolio, which is 
basically getting us, you know, the vertical tangent, all the points from here up to the uh, to asset two, fully investing in asset two, are 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 uh, feasible. And none of these portfolios is, dominates the other. Basically, it's a trade-off between return and volatility. Okay, so, so, so that's a really important point that, uh, you know, there really are portfolios that you can just d disregard um, considering. Um, the, uh, there are, are definite, well, when there's zero correlation, there is a benefit to diversifying across these two assets. So with, if, if you have an asset and you are considering uh, pooling that asset with another in your portfolio, if those are fully uncorrelated, then you should be able to improve your portfolio by adding some allocation to that second asset. Let's look at the considering a negative, a more negative autocorrelation, or a more negative correlation between the two assets of minus 0.4. Here, you'll see that there's a basically a tilt, a negative tilt to the scatter plot of returns. And with the portfolios of two assets, basically the feasible set, that feasible set is actually stretching further to the left. So with a negative correlation between the assets, we're actually able to reduce the volatility even more if that's what you know, is, is our preference. If we go up here to minus 0.8, you know, it gets even more exaggerated. Now, what's going to happen if we have a correlation of negative 1 between these two assets? Yes, then a portfolio of the two assets can have zero variability. So, um, in, indeed, with uh, hedging uh, strategies, um, one often is considering, in, you know, investing in assets consisting of uh, perhaps, you know, an underlying security and some derivative on that, and that derivative, you know, if it's a future, say, you know, could have basically a negative one correlation. So you could essentially hedge out the, the volatility almost, almost perfectly. So, so that special case actually does exist uh, quite frequently and is exploited. Um, but it falls out just from this simple analysis of this, uh, this simple simulation. Okay, let's also look at the uh, going to increase in the correlation. Yes? Of the whole portfolio zero. Does that mean its value will always remain constant equal to zero? Does that mean what? So would that mean since it has zero variance, so it will actually be constant over time? The whole okay. I mean, if it has zero variance, then it should be constant <coughs> over time. Yeah, I and mean, zero variance means that over that that, that its its value is, is a constant, um, and so. Well, in terms of uh, uh, I, I in in the markets, no, nothing has zero or almost nothing has zero zero volatility, <laughs> um, and uh, so. You know, indeed, but but the but in in the pricing theory that uh, Chungbung will be discussing uh, in subsequent lectures, if we have basically a portfolio which has no volatility, 
then its return should be equal to whatever a risk-free rate ought to be. And so, you know, this particular portfolio ought to be structured so that it achieves a return equal to a risk-free rate, barring transaction costs and frictions and all that kind of thing. But, um, yeah. Okay, uh, so if we increase the correlation from, from, uh, from zero uh, to 0.4, well, we still get a benefit of diversification, but less. Um, we're basically not able to lower the variance as much. Um, and it's even more exaggerated with a correlation of 0.8. Um, <coughs> now, in looking at these, or this simulation, I, one thing I want to highlight to you now, which will come up later, is you know, here I've simulated returns according to Gaussian distributions with these means, volatilities, and correlations. And in the, the lower left panel, I give the sample statistics, basically the maximum likelihood estimates for all the parameters. And what you'll see is that these sample estimates differ quite a bit from, well, they differ from the, the theoretical parameters. Okay, in this case, uh, the sample volatility is almost you know, exactly on point for the first asset. It's a bit below 0.287 for the second. The sample mean is 0.21, which is a bit high for the first, and it's 0.321, which is also a bit high for the second. Let's just go back and look at a couple of the others because it can get... Okay, well, here's one where... The sample means are 0.144 and 0.343. Um, and so those are actually quite different from the uh, population parameters. Um, and uh, at least the, the second asset has, has a much higher sample mean. So, so it's important to note that uh, sample estimates can have a certain amount of variability. It turns out that there's less variability in estimating covariances and correlations at the assumptions <coughs> hold and greater uh, variability in the sample means. So uh, at the end of the day, we really need to be very sensitive to what estimates we use and uh, how much uncertainty there is in those. Okay. Let's go back to the lecture notes now. Um, So we've just gone through how we are evaluating different portfolios in terms of the, the pair of the, uh, basically the mean of the portfolio and the volatility, squared volatility of the portfolio. Higher expected returns are obviously desirable, lower volatility is desirable. And so what uh, Markowitz did was to uh, basically pose this as a uh, quadratic programming problem where what we want to do is minimize the volatility of the, or the squared volatility of the portfolio subject to a constraint on the mean of the portfolio and considering that we're fully invested. 
So this mathematical problem is you know, a standard you know, convex optimization problem, a quadratic programming problem, which is very simple. And we solve it by defining a Lagrangian. Basically, we take our objective function, the volatility, and we want to minimize that. We're going to use a half factor just to simplify the computations. And then we add Lagrangians for the different constraints of the problem. So we add lambda 1 times alpha naught minus w prime alpha. We want the mean return, w prime alpha, to be constrained to equal alpha naught. And we also want the sum of the weights, w prime 1m, to equal 1. Uh, and the first order conditions of the Lagrangian basically give us those two constraints for differentiating with respect to lambda 1 and lambda 2. Uh, the, the, the initial first order condition with respect to the portfolio weights uh, basically allows us to solve for, for those weights. N now, this first order condition is going to solve our problem because this, uh, if we take the second order derivative of this Lagrangian, it's going to be sigma. So um, let me just point out that if we take d squared L by dw, dw prime, that's equal to our covariance matrix sigma. And that is a positive definite or positive semi-definite matrix. So, so we indeed are minimizing the, the problem. So this is just a generalization of uh, basically a, a parabola in multi-dimensions, and we're trying to, to minimize that. Well, what's the solution to this? Well, first, we can solve for w, the weights, in terms of lambda 1 and lambda 2. So we take the first order, the first equation of the first order conditions, and basically pre-multiply by sigma inverse across. And we get w naught is equal to lambda 1 sigma inverse alpha plus lambda 2 sigma inverse, the unit vector, our vector of units. And then we can just solve for lambda 1 and lambda 2 by plugging this w naught solution into the second two equations. And this these two equations for the second and third first order conditions is just a very simple linear set of linear equations. Um, we basically have you know, alpha naught alpha, alpha naught 1 is equal to some matrix times lambda 1 lambda 2. And that matrix, A, B, C, is given by alpha prime sigma inverse alpha for the A element. And the B and C elements are those corresponding elements. So this solves the problem. And the variance of the optimal portfolio with a given return can also be solved by just substituting in these solutions. So we get that uh, for a given alpha naught, our target return, the squared volatility of that optimal portfolio is this, has that form. Now what's that form? 
it's essentially a parabola in alpha naught. Okay, so when we're <coughs> looking at, when we're looking, let's see, is there an eraser? Here it is. When we're looking at this graph here in the two-dimensional case, then there's basically a parabola. I can't draw parabolas very well, but there's a parabola between those two points that uh, characterizes the thing. And in multi-dimensional, you know, multiple assets, it's just a, you know, a multivariate extension of that. Um, all right. This particular problem uh, can also be looked at in many in two other ways. I, before we're looking at minimizing the variance subject to a constraint on the expected return, we can also say, well, let's maximize the return subject to a constraint on the volatility. And uh, that problem is basically has the same Lagrangian. And we can also consider just maximizing a weighted average of the return and have a negative multiple on the variance and consider maximizing that expression. Um, this turns out that to be the risk aversion optimization, um, where we basically are penalizing portfolios W for how much variance they have. And the lambda factor tells us how much penalty to associate per variance unit. And these are all equivalent. Uh, problems uh, being solved by the same Lagrangian. And from these problems, we can define the efficient frontier, which is the collection of all possible solutions where we range the target return amongst values that are feasible and the volatility amongst values that are feasible as well. So the efficient frontier will just trace these out. Um, and in, in our two-variable case, our two-asset case, okay, we have sigma and alpha. We have two assets. It's basically a parabola like that. If we have another two assets that we're investing with, Then if we consider the two asset combinate portfolios of just these two assets, there's basically another parabola there. And as we consider different other assets in the mix, we basically get all these parabolas of two asset portfolios. And then combinations of those two asset portfolios gives us our uh, feasible set. And so at the end of the day, we basically have a convex set of all feasible assets, which uh, define the efficient frontier. And the efficient frontier is always going to be basically the top side of that curve. Well, with, 
let's see, the next topic considers adding basically a risk-free asset to invest in. The problem, as it's been stated so far, says we want to be fully invested across our M assets. And what are the optimal portfolios? Well, what if we don't, uh, what if we want to invest some of our money, uh, our capital, just in cash, or not invest our full capital and, and invest the rest in, in, the, in the portfolios? So um, if we consider adding a risk-free asset, uh, then this is an asset, we'll call it the zeroth asset. It has, say, some expected return R0. It's risk-free, so that's a constant. It has zero variance. And if we're investing as well in that possible risky asset, then we can basically consider investing W weights in the risky assets and 1 minus W times the unit vector in, in the risk-free asset. Um, and let's see, I want to draw this graph here. Let's see. Okay. Um, okay, suppose we have two assets where this is the efficient set. And we consider now allowing for a risk-free asset to be invested in as well. Well, that risk-free asset is basically this point here. And it has mean R0 and variance 0. Now, if we combine this asset with any of these portfolios, what's the feasible set going to be? Well, we can basically invest in some money in the risk-free asset and some in asset two. So we can get any point along this line. Basically, if we invest in the risk-free asset, um, if we invest uh, some fraction in asset two and the remainder in the risk-free asset, then our expected return is the linear uh, line between R0 and alpha 2. And the volatility of a weighted average, or of a fraction of asset 2, uh, is, has volatility given by whatever that weight is times the volatility. So, um, so this point here corresponds to, uh, say, w times sigma 2 for its volatility and R0 plus W times alpha 2 minus R0. Now the dramatic thing is that um, we actually are able to achieve an improvement over points on the efficient frontier such as, say, the minimum variance portfolio. Um, and if we consider the fraction up here, we actually have a higher return and a lower variance than the minimum variance portfolio that we considered before. 
And so investing in the risk-free asset does sort of enlarge our opportunity space quite dramatically. And uh, there are some very special results that come from this. Um, so let's go through the mathematics for solving this problem. And in the lecture notes, I'm going to go over this pretty quickly. It's really, when you go through it slowly, you'll say, oh, this is very straightforward and logical. Um, so we're basically going to minimize the volatility subject to the constraint that the return is equal to alpha naught. We define the Lagrangian and do the first order conditions, solve those. And if we solve those, we get basically uh, lambda 1 has this nice form here. And this is obtained by just very simple equation solving of those two first order conditions. And if we have M assets uh, available, uh, when we look at the solution, then we get an optimal portfolio that has a W naught vector given by this solution and a lambda 1 given by this solution. Now, W naught is the proportion, uh, or is the allocation to the risky assets. What, is, what varies depending on our target return alpha naught is simply this uh, lambda 1 uh, Lagrangian multiplier. Basically, alpha naught, our target return, only affects the value of lambda 1. And our weights across the risky assets is a simple multiple of a fixed vector of relative weights. And, and this fixed vector of relative weights is the inverse of the covariance matrix across the assets times alpha minus 1m r0. And uh, so what we have is a portfolio that uh, basically invests in the risky assets in the same way. The only thing that differs is how much weight we give to that particular portfolio. As we increase lambda 1, then we give more allocation to this fixed vector of weight. So we invest proportionally in the assets, and we just scale how much that uh, overall factor is uh, to achieve different levels of return. Okay, we can get cl nice closed form expressions for the portfolio variance. Um, just you know, as an extension of the sort of two asset case, basically the portfolio variance is a parabola in the target return. Um, and so as we increase our target return, we have to increase our portfolio variability. There's a, there is that trade-off with these optimal portfolios. And if we consider the fully invested optimal portfolio, well, um, the fully invested mark, uh, uh, the fully invested portfolio invests nothing in cash, invests everything in the risky assets. 
Um, we actually are going to call that the market portfolio. Um, and the expressions here give us the weights for that uh, market portfolio. And uh, I, this may look a little complicated um, in terms of the expressions, but it's actually simple closed form expressions for uh, the expected return and the variance of the market portfolio. Um, and, and what's happening <coughs> with this is we have basically for the risky assets, we have some efficient uh, or set of feasible portfolios, which is all in this range. And then with our risky asset, we could be investing here. And so the optimal portfolio, the optimal portfolios in, in, in the case where we can invest in, in the uh, risk-free asset will basically correspond to sort of maximizing the, the mean return for across all portfolios. So it's actually going to correspond to the simple tangent line, which basically crosses the uh, market portfolio, which is the fully invested portfolio. Okay, now, um, this structure of the problem is, is actually incredibly powerful. And there's an important paper by Tobin which uh, states that basically every portfolio is going to, under these assumptions for the investment uh, problem, every optimal portfolio invests in a combination of the risk-free asset and the market portfolio. So regardless of what, of how you want, of, uh, regardless of uh, how much risk you want to take, the optimal portfolio is essentially the same. It just depends on how much capital you're going to put into that optimal portfolio. And so uh, all the optimal portfolios will invest in the same risky assets as the market portfolio in the same pr proportions. And the only difference is, is their total weight. Now, plugging in the expressions for the different uh, Lagrange multipliers for a given portfolio, P with return, and we get that expression. So let me just summarize that. So suppose we want the portfolio P such that the expectation of our P is equal to alpha naught. then <clears throat> this, uh, this portfolio RP is going to equal it's going to equal um, basically what uh, it's going to invest in the risk-free asset with one minus one transpose W M 
plus Wm transpose. I'm sorry, Wm times the return of the market. And uh, the actual weights are given by this expression here, which <coughs> gives us, OK, the expression that I was just writing up on the board. We have that the expected return is R0 plus Wm times the market return minus R0. And the volatility, sigma squared p, is simply the square of the weight in the market times the market volatility. OK, this uh, leads to the definition of basically the capital market line, which is <coughs> which is essentially this line here. This is our capital market line for the portfolio optimization. And the structure of this line is such that this point for the market portfolio, that has volatility given by the market portfolio's volatility sigma m and the return on the market alpha m, or expected value of m of Rm. And the slope of this line is given by <coughs> alpha m minus R0 over sigma m. And points along the line are given by R0 plus sigma p times this factor. So this is the uh, expected value of Rp is any optimal portfolio has return equal to the risk-free rate plus a multiple of the return per risk of the market portfolio. This, this term here is called the price of market risk. Yes? Is that the same as the Sharpe ratio? I mean, it's uh, close to the Sharpe ratio. I and mean, the Sharpe ratio is, is uh, yes, I and mean, this is, is the Sharpe ratio for the, uh, for the market portfolio. Yeah. And so um, if we want to invest in, uh, in the market, our decision is reduced then to how much risk are we willing to take. And the compensation for taking extra risk is extra return. And we achieve that by essentially investing in the same portfolio, only we change the scale at which we're investing in that portfolio. So uh, now, if right now, so far we've been considering sort of points so between uh, being fully invested in the market or fully invested in cash, if we are able to borrow money at the risk-free rate, then we can basically allocate additional weights to the market portfolio and achieve points 
that are beyond, you know, have higher return, higher volatility than the market portfolio. We can basically lever the strategy by borrowing money and investing that in, in, in this market portfolio. So, so this uh, efficient frontier, uh, if we can borrow risklessly, you know, would it just be the capital market line extended? Um, here's a listing of, of the papers that go through sort of the classical foundation for this. And I, these are all accessible on the web. And I encourage you to actually look at these papers because uh, the arguments are very straightforward. The motivation and uh, background is, is, is interesting to read. Um, I, virtually everyone on this page actually has a Nobel Prize, except Lintner. I think he died before they gave the Nobel Prize to Markowitz and Sharp. Uh, but he would, certainly would have been included in this case. Pardon me? And the latest one, yes, yes. Fama was uh, <laughs> just awarded, uh, what, two weeks ago. Um, all right, let's. Okay, let's move on to uh, von Neumann Morgenstern utility theory. Now, in, in the Markowitz mean variance analysis, we sort of reduced all portfolios to the properties of what's their expected return and what's their, the variance or volatility of the returns. Um, <clears throat> why, under what circumstances would that be a really good decision to be making for how to do portfolio uh, optimization, portfolio allocations? Well, uh, von Neumann, the von Neumann-Morgenstern theory is uh, a theory which motivates making decisions under uncertainty where you should specify a utility function for your wealth and you should engage in decisions that maximize the expected utility of your wealth. And uh, the theory is, is really very uh, powerful um, in that uh, the, uh, when, when you're making decisions under uncertainty, th there, are, there sort of are rational things you should do. Um, you, know, you, you basically, um, like you should, if you like gr higher return, you know, you sh the decision should be consistent with preferring uh, outcomes with higher returns. If you don't like variability, then you should be preferring returns that have the same expected return that have lower volatility. Um, but depending on how your utility function is defined, you may get different, different outcomes. And uh, the, uh, so, so to set up this problem, let's just consider you know, the, the problem that Markowitz addressed. You have a one-period investment. You start with initial wealth W0. You're going to choose a portfolio P. And uh, the wealth after one period is simply going to be 1 plus the return on that portfolio given uh, terminal wealth W. And our utility function is going to be some quantitative measure of the outcome. What's the value to the investor? And we'd simply want to uh, compute the expected volatility of different strategies and find the strategy that maximizes the expected utility. What kind, what would, or what are the basic properties of utility functions? 
Well, you know, if we graph over wealth, our utility of wealth, starting at W0, our initial wealth, if we uh, have greater wealth, presumably uh, we'll have greater utility. So the slope of the utility function should be increasing. Perhaps as we get more and more wealthy, the marginal benefit of additional wealth isn't quite as much as it was when we were poorer. And so perhaps the curve for the utility function should taper off a bit. Okay, these conditions um, would correspond to the first derivative being increasing always and the second derivative being less than zero, perhaps. Um, there are definitions in the literature of risk aversion, absolute risk aversion, and relative risk aversion. Um, and these are simple functions of the first and second derivatives of the utility function. To see where these come into play, let's just look at, let's assume the utility function is a smooth function and uh, consider a Taylor series approximation of that. So if we consider expanding the utility function about some base wealth W star, then it's simply equal to you know, that value at W star plus the first derivative times W minus W star plus uh, one half the second derivative times the squared deviation of the wealth from W star. And if we take expectations of this, and if W star is the actual expected wealth of the random variable, then the, this expected utility is actually proportional to the expected wealth minus a half lambda times the variance of the wealth. So sort of to a whatever second order approximation, this expected utility is a function which is looking at expected return minus a multiple of the volatility of that return, or the wealth, if we're considering it on that scale. Um, <clears throat> so, well, there are various different utility functions that economists have uh, worked with, and, you know, basically, the kinds of functions they work with are all the simple functions we, as mathematicians, know about. Linear functions, quadratic functions, exponential functions, power functions, right, and log functions. So, you know, these are just, uh, you know, the first ones uh, that come to mind, perhaps, uh, to economists. But um, there's actually a, 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 some rich theory in terms of uh, sort of portfolio or investment choice with different utility functions of, of these types. And, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, there, there is some interesting work, work there in the economics literature. Um, one thing that is uh, uh, to be pointed out is that with quadratic utility, then if we consider the expected utility under quadratic utility, that is the expected utility function that only depends on the expected wealth and the variance of the wealth, which depends only on the expected return and the variance of the return of the portfolio. So if we are working with a quadratic utility function, then this mean variance analysis is the right thing to be doing under the von Neumann-Morgenstern expected utility theory.
So, uh, so doing that is a good, a good decision under, under that, if that's the utility function. Now, when is that solution not to be preferred? Well, really it's not to be preferred if you have a different utility function possibly. And maybe the uh, utility function should be adding some penalties for skewness or kurtosis, and that's being ignored here. So extensions can, can, can be uh, looked at. Uh, an interesting mathematical fact is that you know, under the assumption, or should I say the imagination, that uh, returns are Gaussian distributed, um, then the sort of means and variances of portfolios completely characterize all the distributions of, of portfolios of assets if the underlying assets are Gaussian distributions. So a mean variance analysis is actually optimal under non-quadratic uh, utility functions if the underlying assets are, have Gaussian distributions because basically only the means and variances are going to characterize the optimal portfolios and properties of those. And uh, uh, that's a stochastic dominance of functions of these variables will generally apply when the, uh, there's that corresponding stochastic dominance in terms of their means and variances. Anyway, th this kind of theory can, can, uh, can get involved, but allows us to extend the, the basic model that we consider here. Let's turn to, then to the topic of uh, portfolio constraints. So far, in looking at this problem, we haven't made any constraints on the problem. We just want to maximize return, minimize variance, and uh, consider trade-offs between those. Uh, with, uh, pract with practical uh, portfolio optimization problems, there, there are different constraints that come into play. Um, Portfolios that are long only constrain the weights to only be positive. There can be holding constraints, which, uh, and it may be that we don't want the amount of a given asset to be too, too big. Um, in uh, basically equity strategies, you, you don't want to be holding, uh, if, if you have a sort of a medium frequency trading strategy in equities, you don't want to be holding. Uh, much more than the trading volume of a few hours or maybe a day in, in the asset because if you have, have having to sell it, uh, you know, there really won't be the liquidity to trade that. Um, but uh, we can add basically simple linear constraints on the holdings. There can be turnover constraints. If we're considering um, changing our, our basically adjusting our portfolio uh, from one period to the next, uh, we may not, or there are limits in terms of how much we can actually trade of the different assets. Um, there can be a, uh, benchmark exposure constraints. Um, suppose we want to invest in a portfolio that's very much like um, basically a market index, say the S&P 500, um, but we want to try and do better than the S&P 500, but um, but at the but we don't but we want to protect ourselves from uh, basically not being very close to the benchmark if our bets basically on, on allocation are wrong, then uh, one 
can basically attempt, one can control how different from the benchmark allocation we are and, and limit that, uh, that departure. So we can uh, basically limit how far from the benchmark weights we want our portfolio to be. And, and, and this is useful basically for considering strategies that uh, do as well or better than particular benchmark indices. Um, related to this are tracking error constraints. Um, <coughs> you know, in addition to um, basically not having allocation weights that depart much from the benchmark weights, uh, we can consider how much variation is there in our portfolio uh, compared with an underlying uh, benchmark. And, and we can consider the tracking error between our portfolio P and the underlying benchmark and measure that tracking error in terms of the variability of that difference and want to control that. There are also risk factor constraints. And in, in, in equity markets, there are m many different factors that uh, affect uh, returns. Um, and uh, these factors can be identified empirically uh, and controlled for by basically limiting the exposure to different factors in, in the portfolio. And we'll see this in our uh, uh, next lecture some. But uh, basically, if there are underlying factors, F, which uh, basically a return on asset I can be explained by sort of an idiosyncratic alpha for that asset plus certain correlations with market factors F, and then a residual uh, innovation epsilon. Um, and so the returns on these assets can uh, be explained perhaps 50% by underlying market forces and um, given by the underlying factors FJT, which are uh, constant across I. So these are affecting all the stocks with different coefficients beta I, K. Um, and uh, in a portfolio, we may want to limit the exposure to a given factor. And with many strategies, you actually want to neutralize the portfolio to those market risk factors. So we can actually constrain our weights to have zero exposure across these different uh, market factors. Uh, there are other, other constraints, minimum transaction size. Um, you know, it, it generally is the case that uh, you know, trades and equities are in, in 100 share units, although that's changing. Um, there can be minimum uh, holding sizes. And uh, there's also integer constraints that, that can be applied. Um, if you're trading uh, assets that have sort of large values, then uh, these integer constraints actually come into play. And if you're trading Google stock, and how much is Google stock worth now? Something like that. Yeah. So, you know, compare that with uh, Ford, you know, which is like $50 or I don't know. But, you know, it's orders of magnitude different. So, so integer constraints can come into play. Um, if you're dealing in very large size, then these things don't really have much of an impact. But uh, uh, they can uh, with smaller portfolios. Um, now, 
all of these different constraints can be expressed as linear and quadratic constraints on the weights. And uh, so, so the setup for uh, the portfolio optimization problem can be the same as before, except we add in these additional constraints. So we uh, basically add in additional Lagrange multipliers times these particular constraints, whether they're linear or quadratic, and we can implement the portfolio optimization problem that way. Let me uh, turn to an example. Let's go. Let's see. here. Okay, I want to go through an example of, uh, uh, I'll use the mouse. Okay, I want to consider um, U.S. sector exchange traded funds between 2009 and last week. Um, the, uh, basically, the, there are uh, you, exchange traded funds allow you to invest in equity markets with sort of single assets that represent different sectors. Um, the ones that are considered here are very, basically spider traded funds, uh, which invest in the different major industrial sectors of the U.S. market, uh, ranging from materials, healthcare, consumer staples, down to technology and utilities. Here is a graph of the cumulative returns of these nine different exchange-traded funds. And uh, over the period uh, from 2009 up through uh, last week. And what one can see is uh, basically they perform differently. Um, and what I'd like to do is just examine sort of what would have been an optimal allocation across these exchange traded funds over this period. So basically looking back at the data and seeing how our portfolio uh, analysis uh, tools um, would, would result in particular application allocations. So, um, so we can look at the risk versus return annualized of these. Let's see. This is, I don't know if that's, I guess that's good enough. Anyway. What you can see is, you know, basically with volatility ranging between zero and 30 odd, annualized return between zero and 25, um, we have the different sectors in this, uh, in this plot. So this is our uh, feasible set of, uh, or th this is the plot of return versus volatility for these nine exchange traded funds. Um, this happens to be utilities. There's financials over there. Here's consumer staples. The very top is uh, consumer uh, discretionary.
And see, I applied a uh, mean variance optimization to this problem, uh, assuming that there's a constraint of 30% of the capital per asset. So we don't want to invest more than 30% of the capital in any single exchange-traded fund. And this, uh, graph here shows how as we vary our target return from sort of the minimum value up to the maximum value for being fully invested, how much of the capital we're going to invest in the different sector funds. So what you can see is this yellow one, which is consumer staples, is coming in with a really high weight. And the green is energy. Um, let's see, I think it's energy. That uh, is, is the next one. Then in uh, orange is, is health. And uh, <clears throat> what's, what's important to see is that when, when we're looking sort of at the lower range of the returns, basically expecting returns above the risk-free rate that's very low, then the relative proportion invested in the different assets is the same. Basically, these allocations are slowly scaling up just linearly. And that corresponds to basically investing in the optimal portfolio without constraints with a fixed value. But once we hit the 30% level, then that constraint starts to be active, and we can't invest any more in that, so we have to add more to other securities. And so basically more is given to uh, the uh, I think it's consumer's discretionary and, and the other. Now, this graph, actually, here's another graph of the same data, just stacking the allocation. The allocation. So we consider ranging from basically how are we investing all of our capital. The, this dark red is how much money we invest in cash. And then these colored lines indicate by their vertical length how much we're investing in the different exchange-traded funds. So, so basically, as the constraints get hit, we basically, the portfolios sort of change in terms of their overall structure. And what can happen is, um, actually, as we're trying to achieve more and more return, well, there may not be assets that provide that additional return or there may be a very few assets that provide that return. And so but, um, in this case, uh, technology stocks are coming in as we're trying to get really high levels of return in our optimal portfolios. And um, so if we really want that higher return, that's going to come at higher risk. Uh, and we actually are deallocating some from uh, the consumer staples and uh, that consumer discretionary at that point. Okay, this, um, okay, here's a graph of the uh, efficient frontier as estimated with the, with the data. Um, and what you can see is that uh, basically these portfolios, optimal portfolios, yield improvements over each of the individual exchange-traded funds in terms of having higher return with lower risk. Um, and 
Let's see, if we consider just a target return of 10%, okay, there's the optimal portfolio. I've graphed here, sort of in solid blue, what the uh, optimal portfolio with a 10% uh, volatility is. That's the solid blue line there. So this is the, these are the results with uh, this 30% capital constraint. Now, how is this problem going to change if we uh, reduce the capital constraint from 30% per asset to 15%. Who can comment on what, what will change? Dan. Well, I'm a little confused. Why wouldn't you put a constraint on the risk-free asset? Could you do that as well? Or? Um, well, the risk-free asset has no risk. And so, um, Putting a constraint, well, you could put a constraint on it in terms of it not going negative and it not being greater than one. So, in fact, that is a constraint. Those are constraints that are imposed here. But, um, but the, and I guess in some, well, there are like, uh, I guess endowments say that have investment policies that say that they want a certain fraction of their assets invested in risky assets and not in cash. And so, that you know is is uh, is a realistic constraint in certain circumstances, and this is just highlighting you know the how the allocations vary across the risky assets if if we only have very simple constraints on on the cash investment. Well, the question I uh, want to focus on is what happens if we make these the maximum allocation constraint more severe, so it's fifteen percent instead of thirty. Then what's going to happen is the, these, these capital constraints are going to start hitting sooner. So we have to allocate to more uh, to the other exchange-traded funds. So let me show you how that works out with the same graph. close that and then we go here. Okay, this shows basically with a 50% allocation how, how the allocations vary. And uh, I'll, I'll be posting this on the course website, um, but uh, it turns out the efficient frontier is actually lower. Basically, we, you know, for higher returns, we actually can't get those higher returns from by giving the getting the biggest bang for the buck. We don't want to allocate too much to those higher return, higher risk securities. And so the uh, optimal, uh, the efficient frontier, as estimated, uh, basically slopes down. Um, now, <coughs> just uh, okay as an ex okay with with this particular example of these. Uh, exchange-traded funds and how you'd allocate across those. Um, you know, this provides some insight into portfolio optimization. It's not really a realistic setting because we're looking over the past and using the actual sample performance to define these portfolios. Um, let me just highlight a, an example of applying these kinds of methods with um, Let's 
here. Yeah. Okay. Let's see, is that the right graph? Yeah, okay. Okay, suppose we uh, consider not investing in exchange-traded funds, but we are a, a hedge fund and we have uh, sector pricing models across all these different sectors. And what we can do is consider in going long-short in these sectors. And in fact, we consider sort of a, sort of a uh, market-neutral strategy sector by sector and consider investing uh, in, in the in sector by sector in these different sector-based models. Okay, here's a graph of different multi-factor pricing models for trading market-neutral programs within each of uh, nine industrial sectors, the same ones corresponding to the exchange-traded funds. And uh, okay, because the, these strategies are market-neutral, the uh, sort of total returns over, this is a five-year period, um, are rather modest, namely uh, you know, sort of 60% for some of the models, 20% for other models. What's particularly uh, relevant with these models, though, is that they tend to be less correlated. And, um, the diversification benefits can be rather dramatic. And so here is a graph of the optimal allocations across these different sector uh, market neutral models. And we can see that this red model is getting a lot of weight. That actually is uh, the utility sector. And then these other models are uh, industrials and uh, Let's see, industrials and energy. Um, and so if we consider investing in these, we can actually achieve, uh, with a target volatility of 10%, we can achieve this solid blue line as, as the portfolio strategy. And one can see how by combining these assets together, these assets are different uh, uh, market-neutral trading models, um, we actually get uh, quite a bit of benefit from the portfolio optimization. And the greater benefit in the portfolio optimization is because these uh, strategies tend to be, uh, have much lower correlations with each other and uh, setting value. Let's go back now finish up with uh, how, do we, how do we go back here <laughs> where's my red dot
Okay, just to finish up the discussion, um, with these methods, um, it's important to highlight that you know, what we've been using were estimated returns, estimated volatilities, and correlations. And these estimates can have a huge impact on, on the results. Um, there's basically choices of estimation period. There's estimation error. Uh, different techniques can. Uh, modulate these, these issues. Uh, exponential moving average are often applied. Having dynamic factor models is, is used. Um, basically, rather than using sample estimates of the variance covariance matrix, using factor models to estimate the variance covariance matrix um, results in uh, more precise uh, inputs to, to the optimization. Um, and finally, just with uh, different risk measures, we've been focusing on portfolio volatility and minimizing that. The methodologies can be extended to have different measures of risk. Mean absolute deviation, for example, or semivariance. Um, in terms of you know, the motivation for squared volatility and minimizing that, you'll recall that in likelihood analysis of Gaussian distributions, the sort of square deviations from the means are characterizing variability. Well, if we focus on mean absolute deviation, then probability distributions that where the distributions relate to the absolute deviation from the mean characterizing the distribution might be appropriate. And indeed, uh, distributions with heavier tails, like exponential distributions, uh, basically are appropriate when we consider mean absolute deviation. So, um, some alternate risk measures are appropriate when the volatility measure itself isn't um, necessarily appropriate because of the, the distributional assumptions. Uh, semivariance was introduced actually by Markowitz, uh, where you're interested in controlling the downside risk as opposed to the upside risk. Um, and uh, there's value at risk measures, which are now completely standard in uh, portfolio management and uh, management of uh, risky assets um, where one is actually, well, this was introduced by Ken Abbott in one of the first few lectures. Uh, value at risk is basically a very simple idea of characterizing what outcome is uh, sort of the threshold of extreme at, say, the 5% level or the 1% level and to basically keep a monitor of that, the value at risk. So if we had a risk that was you know, basically in the worst 5% or 1% of the time, what is that level? That's the value at risk. Um, that, as a nice risk measure, is um, simple to define but, and, and reasonably simple to, to estimate, but um, it doesn't characterize sort of what the potential exposure is if you exceed that. And there are extensions of that, the conditional value at risk, which is looking at the expected loss given that you exceed the value at risk threshold. And uh, this method is now, uh, I, guess, I think it's being, going to be incorporated into uh, regulatory uh, uh, you know, requirements for, for banks in terms of how they measure risk. Right now, I believe it's 
almost all value at risk uh, extensions, but this uh, conditional value at risk is, is definitely going to be uh, applied. Um, and in the discussion of different risk measures, there's literature talking about what are appropriate risk measures and how, how do we define those. Well, you know, it really depends on what your assets are. And if you, your assets are simply simple investments in stocks or bonds, sort of cash assets or you know, uh, cash instruments, then uh, value at risk is, is quite reasonable. But if you're investing in derivatives, which have nonlinear payoffs, then things get complicated. And so um, things basically need to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis there. But, uh, but if you're interested in, in risk analysis, there's a whole discussion on coherent risk measures that uh, uh, you, you, can, you can look into, and it's quite interesting. All right, let's stop there. Thank you.